Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. Welcome back for part two of my interview with William Lozanik on the rise and the fall of the black blue collar working class. So, so there was this 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 uh, uh, downward mobility, but it it became really ugly, uh, I think because of race. Um, and, uh, and, and then there's also ultimately it was, uh, this is, it's related to the different ways in which companies were governed. Uh, and so all the work I've done on financialization, which is really about, uh, not just how the rich get richer, but the fact that if you're going to get a strong middle class, you have to share the gains uh, with your employees, uh, and you have to. That comes through employment stability, uh, better jobs over time. When you have productivity increases, you have pay increases. And of course, there's this chart which I've used for some time that EPI has put out on that gap between productivity. Oh yeah, and oh, and, I'm and on their board. And, and, <laughs> yeah, 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 and it, of course the timing, all the timing is the same. It's the same. Yep. It all starts in the late 70s, early 80s, and the graph goes bigger. And, you know, when I see those wages tracking productivity growth in terms of percentages in the first, you know, 46 to the late 70s in their chart, that's because companies were keeping people employed. Now, actually, EPI doesn't focus on that, but that's what it was about. They, they focus on the unions, but they don't focus on that essential part of that employment relation. And the gap comes when companies say it's not our responsibility. And uh, basically, uh, they started looking for reasons why it was not their responsibility before the people in the business school started saying uh, companies should maximize shareholder value. <laughs> uh, so, so we've been doing a lot of the history of rise of this ideology uh, of shareholder value. And uh, it's really uh, part and parcel of companies saying, uh, and being pushed to have more responsibility. In this case, uh, more responsibility in terms of, of uh, hiring black workers. Uh, what we found from these studies, like the racial policy of American industry and other, other stuff that was done, uh, many of the companies welcomed this because they wanted to get you know, the, the hardworking black workers, like the hardworking white workers moving up and, and, and being their more permanent employees. Um, and so it gave supervisors and managers a way of saying to the, their white workers, look, it, you can't tell me I can't do this. This is required by law. Uh, and so it, it became, and once you start doing that, you start having the role models and you start having the mixing of blacks and whites and breaking down of the, the racial animosity, I think, in many of those plants, um, as long as the jobs are expanding. And uh, now, uh, it, it, it didn't just evaporate because of the decline of U.S. manufacturing. Uh, 
uh, it evaporated because in the process of decline, uh, uh, major companies said, we just don't have responsibility to uh, keeping workers employed. And uh, you know the, the, the CEO who took the lead in that was Jack Welch at, at GE himself from a white working class background. And, and he never actually in his 20 years as being the CEO of GE, he, he never used, they never used the annual report where we have to create value for our shareholders. And, if, and he had an interview in 2009 where he said, shareholder value, that's not a strategy. That's just, you know, if you, you, do, the, you do the stuff for your workers, for your products, et cetera. To some extent, it was bullshit, but if coming from him. But what he really did in, in, two, in 1981 is he said, uh, we're only going to be in industries in which we're number one or number two. Now, by that time, GE had become a totally unwieldy conglomerate in uh, dozens and dozens of different industries and uh, that had no relation to one another. And where they were number one or number two with, with aircraft engines, medical equipment, and power systems, where they're still you know, uh, number one or number two. And those went back decades. And so he just started laying people off dramatically. And, and that really, I mean, that's why he was lionized. Uh, you know, when he was called Neutron, Neutron Jack, because you get rid of the people, you know, the buildings are there, the people disappeared. Because that really said to corporate America, you, you know, this norm of keeping people employed, which was quite strong coming into the 1980s, you no longer have to abide by that. Yeah, I sense that after the Second World War and soldiers come back and so we feel like we're all in this together. But that ethic somehow evaporated. Uh... Yeah, and and by the way, on that, uh, you know, the GI Bill, and it's been well documented by a number of scholars, uh, that was very important in terms of intergenerational upward mobility for whites. Blacks were were not able to take advantage of it, mainly because basically, and I studied this in great detail at one point, uh, basically what the evolution of, of education in the United States was it created the primary system before, and you put the uh, higher education system through the land-grant college structure in place before there was actually a feeder from the secondary system. Uh, so it really was only after, uh, starting in the 1930s, but and after World War II, you really started f filling that in. And so there were, there were enough whites who had a high school education and they could apply to uh, get the GI Bill to go to college and something. But for blacks, there was there was this barrier. And, and so they actually, it's been well documented, fell further behind at that point because of, because of that. Um, and But I come across, uh, you know, I'm re I, I'll give an example uh, with one of my uh, people I work with, Matt Hopkins, we're doing uh, he's doing a, uh, a really a, a great study, which will appear as an INET paper at some point on uh, a year ago. The ventilator issues were in the news, and we, we discovered this company uh, that was now part of Philips that was supposed to deliver ventilators to the strategic national stockpile called Respironics. It's based uh, near Pittsburgh, and uh, it had been acquired by uh, Philips, which was the one Dutch company from whom the United States had bought uh, the uh, the ventilators who wasn't really delivering them 
but they had been acquired in 2008. And we started looking at the history of this company and we found that it was a company guy built up uh, who uh, had worked at Westinghouse and then had left Westinghouse in his 40s, started his own company, built it from scratch to uh, about 5,000 employees, uh, a leading company in making uh, ventilators, respiratory equipment. And when uh, we, we located him, he's in uh, his uh, late 80s now. And when Matt went to uh, do the first interview, uh, uh, we knew that he was his age and he had gone to college, I think the University of Illinois in the early 1950s before going to work for Westinghouse. And I said to Matt, I said, Matt, he's going to tell us two things. He's going to tell us he's the first person in his family to went to college. And he's going to say that he went on the GI Bill. And both those were true. And even more so, he told us that he he enlisted for the Korean War to get access to the GI Bill. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, and that was the military industrial complex era, but there was, you know, all this stuff going on for upward mobility. And, you know, and and uh, Blacks uh, were starting to move into it. But 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 access was denied, and so we then just trace how this continued. Nothing was done about it, uh, and to this day, nothing's really been done about it. And because when people say let's create jobs, if you can't create jobs that are going to keep people stably employed uh, for a few decades, well, those people don't have good jobs. <laughs> um, and and there's if you don't if you're not looking out to see you know, who's losing those jobs and when, you know, then, then you're not, uh, the society isn't making sure uh, that you're going to have good jobs. And actually, a lot of the people who lose those good jobs are university educated people who are in their 40s and 50s and companies lay off. And they said, okay, we need younger people. We are globalizing. We can get people from other parts of the world, etc. And even though they're expanding, they're laying off people. Now, that became the norm, as I said, with these old economy companies. But then what really cemented it was why, in which I look at in this book I wrote in 2009 on the rise of the new economy business model, uh, the rise of, of companies like uh, uh, Oracle, Apple, Cisco, etc., cetera, uh, because they didn't do manufacturing by and large. Um, uh, well, Intel did, did, of course, with his fabrications. But, but, uh, and, of course, the CEO of Apple, his claim to fame, Tim Cook is that he told Steve Jobs, here's how you can get China to do our mass manufacturing of our devices uh, and created, you know, made Foxconn into a world leader. And also, by the way, made TSMC, the semiconductor company, into a world leader uh, uh, by outsourcing. Um, and uh, uh, so those companies didn't care about blue collar workers uh, and, and they could be employed anywhere and, and increasingly they were employed in Asia. Uh, and uh, but they did care about white collar workers. Um, but one of the things that they had to do was get them to actually take up employment uh, in a, a company like, uh, let's say, Cisco, which was founded in uh, two people in 1984 and had 250 people in, in, in uh, 1990 in, in Silicon Valley. At that time, if you wanted to get a good engineer, and that engineer was working at Hewlett Packard, they were getting what we call this career with one system employment relation. 
they were getting, you know, the, the defined benefit pension. They were getting the health care. They were, would never be laid off. This was written up in a book called The HP Way by David Packard in 1995, a year before he died. It was about now. So you couldn't say to them, oh, we're going to give you, you know, this career employment uh, because you don't know if you're going to be around uh, next year or the year after. So they gave them stock options. And actually, uh, the rise of stock options, I mean, there's a whole other history with Matt Hopkins in particular. I've written about this. The rise of stock options uh, as a mode of compensation uh, really didn't come at the CEO level. Primarily uh, in the in the 80s, it, it was broad-based stock options to try to attract employees away from secure employment uh, with the old economy companies to come to the new economy companies. And as those companies grew bigger, uh, supporting their stock price was very important. So when they started having a lot of profit, they didn't pay dividends, but they started doing buybacks originally to support the stock price and to and then that just became a disease. <laughs> and, and, and 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 the, and Apple, you know, has done 436 billion, or 426 billion of buybacks since 2013. It's a, it's a crime, uh, um, and uh, uh, it's just paying people to sell their stock and boost their stock price. It may seem disconnected from the black employment argument, but it's totally connected. It was just a total reversal in norms, and. Also, the rise of shareholder value ideology before it actually started getting enunciated. Uh, you can see it. There's articles with look at hits in the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, other places. Only from about '85, I think it has a lot to do with Harvard University Business School hiring this guy Michael Jensen, who I call the, uh, uh, ac- uh, you know, the the, uh, the cheer academic uh, cheerleader for uh, uh, for uh, uh, shareholder value ideology. He really put it on the map. Who was the gentleman that wrote the book, The Golden Parachute? I remember oh, uh, about Harvard Business School. Oh, oh the, gold, the Golden Passport, uh, Duff McDonald. Golden Passport, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I remember some of your objections were featured in well, that yeah. text well, he, as well. He, he actually, uh, uh, I told him the story which he wrote about, uh, more or less correctly. Uh, it was in also in a, in a Newsweek article about how I was banned from Harvard Business School by Michael Jensen in 1992, uh, which uh, which actually happened. But in any case, uh, that 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 was the they were it was pretty well entrenched the, the notion they had to ban me from from Harvard Business School uh, from coming to seminars there. This was I was at Barnard at the time. It was a longer story, but the the thing is that that really changed. but really what changed it was uh, this obscure rule that. Uh, that Ken Jacobson and I uh, were trying to finish our paper on this and a colleague, Lenore Palladino has written a lot on this as well. Rule 10B18 by the SEC, which was captured by the Chicago economists in 1982, which allowed these large scale buybacks. We call it a license to loot. And now everybody talks about it because we've got it out there and, and, and there's a debate about it. And there's a lot of defenders of buybacks that are constantly out there uh, as well. But uh, uh, basically this, no one was saying at that time, really, it really, there wasn't really much discussion of companies should be run for shareholders. But in fact, they gave them a tool to do this, a critical tool, the SEC. And, and it was done uh, basically because uh, actually fundamentally, it, it's related to this whole story as well. Again, people might not see the direct connection. The critical issue 
And it's a reason why liberals have not responded to this problem of what we call the looting of the industrial corporation, is that if you ask 99.9% .9 of economists, how do companies get funded? They'd say the stock market. And it's not true. The stock market is a way of taking money out of companies, not putting money into companies. Doesn't mean you can never raise money on the stock market. And biotech companies do it when, when they're very speculative. But uh, for venture capitalists, which is private equity, it's an exit strategy. And it's the liquidity of the stock market that allows you to take money out. And that's, so the, the primary role of the stock market has always been to allow a separation of ownership control to, to take money out, not to put money in. Capital formation, the fundamental source of capital formation, which was understood coming into the 1980s, is the profits that a successful company retains. And it's important because it's those profits that allow it not only to have the revenues to employ the labor force it had before, but to give them higher wages and to invest in the next generation of products, because all those products you have are at some point going to, even if you have a dominant position, there's going to be competition for them. And uh, that was what was understood in business schools as the foundation of capital formation. Um, and what happened in the 70s with the rise of trading on Wall Street rather than investing, and there's this whole transformation of Wall Street that had took place in the 1970s, people started seeing all that money sloshing around uh, in financial markets as being somehow capital formation. And that's the way the SEC sees it now. And that's the way almost all, all economists see all the more money is going around, it's going to end up somewhere as capital formation. Well, that is not how capital gets formed. Uh, it's not just the investments you have to make, uh, the billions of dollars in a semiconductor plant, which, of course, is extreme version. It's even when you do the semiconductor plant, there's billions of dollars in people who you need to employ to make that plant work. And you need people at all levels to make these companies function. And, and you're investing in people who are who are basically your human assets, except you can't declare them on your balance sheet because we, unlike slavery, we don't own people anymore. So uh, there, there's that was actually a divide that that was occurring uh, in in uh, that informed what the SEC doing did informed uh, and it wasn't just you know right wing economists it was liberal economists even progressive economists. You know, the imperfect market, let the market work, and, and it, it's not going to work that way. Uh, it, it's the companies and their growth that's important. And uh, now, looking at it at this point in time, uh, one thing uh, I advocate getting rid of buybacks is just a complete uh, uh, kind of looting that's going on, totally unnecessary and totally, you can pay people dividends for holding shares, give People are fortunate enough to have shares, but not everybody, at least a stream of retirement income. They're better off if the companies are well managed when they want to sell the shares later if they're not doing buyback. But the other side of it, uh, that is this notion of a career with one company, having done this project and having looked at the whole globalization project uh, process, I wouldn't say, well, we can recreate that now. Uh, we can't because uh, there's too much. We did that in a particular context. Where that, and it wasn't just done in the United States, but where it was really closed economies, building themselves up behind tariff barriers or behind, uh, or the United States having this lead in terms of the military industrial complex and really goes back to all the research that companies had done as well as government, particularly companies. The 1930s was the greatest decade, uh, of, well, one of the greatest decades for research 
in the United, in, in the history of the United States. Companies were laying off their blue collar workers, but they were doing all this research, which positioned the United States for World War II and then for the endless frontier after that. Okay, we can't go we can't go back to that. So what it means is that uh, government policy has an even bigger role to play uh, in ensuring uh, these careers of people over time. And they have to be careers if they're if you're going to have an advanced economy. Now you can't also create those blue collar jobs where basically uh, they can be done anywhere around the world. They have to be careers where people have more and more experience, expertise. Not everybody's going to get them, and so you have to have minimum wages and things like that. I'm totally for that, but you have to have a lower and lower proportion of the population or smaller smaller proportion dependent on. Uh, you know, on, on, on those low wages. And of course, it's been just the opposite. People have been pushed out of the, the decent paying jobs into low wage jobs, low wage, decent paying jobs been made low wage jobs. So, uh, but the other side is you can't just do that with government. Uh, it has to have a collaboration of business. Uh, and so you have to have this change in business norm. And and it's so is far it, is it now. norms Is it norms or is it laws and regulations that induce them to shift their norms i think i think it's 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 norms because it's just so unchallenged even when okay and this is looking at the buyback phenomenon and i've written about this in some inet papers of uh, various types i mean i uh virtually i got apple all over the place here i like my, my kids just gave me an apple watch so i'm even more dug into the Apple ecosystem. So, you know, and I got these Apple, another daughter gave me Apple Air, AirPods and all this stuff. Okay, that's fine. But the fact is that that company is evil. Uh, and wait for an INET paper that I have coming out on the semiconductor industry, because as I said, TSMC, which is now the world, by far the world leader in, uh, as a, in semiconductor fabrication, got there because uh, of its Apple, uh, uh, contracts from 2015. It, about 25% of their revenues are uh, are Apple uh, from Apple, and they killed the Huawei smartphones uh, through U.S. government policies, which I think Apple had a role in as well. Um, okay, uh, Apple uh, back in 2010. Uh, uh, there was a guy who uh, named Mark Lapidus. I've never met the guy, but he, he's a he's a very well known uh, writer in electron, you know, uh, elect, you know, digital electronic uh, news magazines and stuff like this. He wrote an article that said that what Steve Jobs should do now that they were so profitable was invest in a fab. And Apple, which as I said, has spent four hundred. $26 billion or something like that in buybacks since 2013, cheerleaded most recently by Warren Buffett. They could have uh, spent at that point $4 billion, $5 billion. Now it's 10 or $15 billion, but it would have been a fraction of what it's spending on buybacks. It, didn't, it, could, have been, it could have done it at a separate company and had their own fabrication facilities. Uh, and you would not have Taiwan being, being a world leader in that industry. Uh, no, actually, Taiwan's now uh, going to build TSMC because of the pressure is going to build a big plant in Arizona. But it's still, you know, geopolitics of it is that's that's where the action is, and 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 at Samsung, uh, they could have done that. Um, now, why didn't they do it? It wasn't that they had to start spending 
as much as $73 billion a year buying back their stock. Um, and it wasn't simply that on their board, which I point out all the time, and I'm always happy to point out, but no one's, no journalists seem to want to take this up, that they have people who don't can't think about better uses they could have put to that the money. Uh, because the longest serving board member is a guy named Arthur Levinson, who was the head of Genentech, which is, a, of course, a hugely successful American company that was protected by the stock market from the stock market by being owned by Roach, a Swiss company. And it's it's a highly innovative company. Its executives are going to other companies, pharmaceutical companies around the world. He then is uh, became the, the head of Google's pharmaceutical arm. He has a he's a scientist with a long experience in this industry. And why isn't he saying uh, to Apple, well, you know, we should really use our ability to hire people, all our software capabilities, etc., to you know, you don't need to do it as Apple you, to to spin off a company and invest in all this money in something that's world changing. You know, now, now they're talking about doing with the car, with the auto, with with you know, uh, self-driving cars, and that's because the stock market's booming for 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 EV stocks and stuff like that. But they could have done that with in a whole lo- a number of other areas. The second longest-serving board member, and this is why I can't then say it's not about laws. It's really just about a failure of norms and a failure of norms, not just among conservatives, but uh, uh, I would say uh, uh, across the board. Second longest serving board member is Al Gore. He's been there since 2003. So he's been there for three years before um, he he, uh, came out with his movie, An Inconvenient Truth. Uh, In the years he was there, Apple went uh, from being moderately profitable to being hugely profitable. We've written about this. They did not do buybacks. They did not pay dividends. When they started doing that buybacks and dividends after Steve Jobs left in 1985 to 1997, they almost went bankrupt. And when Steve Jobs came back, he stopped that stuff. It's hard to say what Jobs would have done if he had still been there, uh, you know, if he hadn't died in 2011. Uh, But they don't say anything about these things. You know, uh, they don't say, well, why are we doing this? They don't give a reason for why they're doing $73 $73 billion in buybacks. Uh, they call it their capital return program. So I often say the only time Apple ever got money from the stock market was in its IPO in 1980 when it got $97 million. So who was it returning capital to? Warren Buffett, who uh, on paper doubled his money from 36 or $7 billion to about $74 billion in, in the run-up of Apple stock. Well, stock, well, since 2016, they've been doing $55 billion a year in buybacks. Uh, he's never contributed one penny to Apple. Uh, he just bought Apple shares. And uh, he, he, he's supposed to be the, our patient capitalist. He's just cheerleading this stuff. So the people who should know better, and actually, if you, you hear Warren Buffett when he Starts talking about Berkshire Hathaway. He said, "They said, well, yeah, we we actually just plowed back our earnings. Berkshire Hathaway never paid a dividend. Berkshire Hathaway uh, employs 390,000 people, mainly because, unlike uh, Jack Welch, they they've actually protected the companies that they brought into the conglomerate, and they left the managers in place. And this has been enormously profitable because they've let they didn't try to squeeze those. It is a, they've left those. It's actually in the, almost in, the, in Berkshire Hathaway's constitution that they, they leave the managers in place when you acquire the company. So they 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 kind of protected that old economy model in a way. Uh, I'm not sure that Buffett really understands that, but uh, 
So that's that's I that's where I have a problem that people who should know better don't seem to know better on these issues, and and they uh, will then come to the Black Lives Matter movement when after George Floyd you know, was killed in plain sight, and uh, and you know. Uh, we put in one of our INET papers on uh, on the ventilators. We put in the stuff about Apple, Apple coming up with a hundred million dollars uh, for a racial uh, justice program, in, uh, almost exactly a year ago. So a few weeks, you know, when the Black Lives Matter movement surged, but it was a tiny fraction of what it had spent on buybacks, even from August of 2019 when it signed the Business Roundtable. Uh, uh, you know, statement about stakeholders and all this bullshit. So, uh, and of course, so they're not, they're not walking the walk at all. They'll they'll come in when need be. They'll distance themselves from uh, the people who say that Trump, you know, was elected for about two, three weeks, you know, in terms of their ads, in terms of their support, et cetera. And then they'll all come running back and they'll, they'll forget about it. Um, And, and of course, those are the people who have, are rich. Those are the people who have influence, and uh, and uh, they're about as black, far away as they can be. Not just from the black working class, from the white working class at this point. Um, and uh, um, you know that, yeah. So I, I think now, obviously, the laws that end up being put in place uh, reflect uh, those. Those. those, those, well, those as those, you, yeah. as you and my friend Tom Ferguson would say that the laws aren't made independently from the concentration. Yeah, of wealth. yeah, and yeah. So they reflect and the regulatory uh, appointments and the enforcement of laws all reflect this uh, where the power uh, lies in in relation to the political system, which is very dependent on money. Yeah. So let me just give you one example related to what I just said. It's Rule 10b18, which is an obscure rule. Passed without public comment by the SEC, by five commissioners, with with one person arguing against it, uh, a guy named John Evans, who was a Nixon appointee, but an old old school type guy who said this is going to allow companies to manipulate the stock market. They got him to go along with it ultimately, and then the chair of the SEC, Shad, kicked him off the the, the uh, commission the year later. Uh, uh, they they uh, adopted this highly consequential rule. Uh, until I wrote an article in Harvard Business Review in 19, uh, 2014 that got a lot of uh, publicity, no one really had talked about that rule in Congress. Uh, there had been one discussion of buybacks by Schumer and Menendez and a few others in 2008 when the oil companies were doing lots of buybacks. The only case I can find, but they never really said, what, why, why are they allowed to do this? Um, now you have Tammy Baldwin has uh, something called the Reward Work Act, which would rescind that rule. Uh, it uh, uh, it would it would it recognize that it's looting. Where that will go, it's hard to say, but at least we have that being debated. If uh, you know people who were running the country back in the 1980s understood the importance of what I called you know, the equal employment opportunity omission, you know, that you had to give people secure jobs. And if people were losing secure jobs, particularly people who are been disadvantaged and were moving up, you had to figure out how to deal with that rather than let just let, let the market work and let run companies for shareholder value. Rather than just go with that flow, you had to say, how are we really going to confront this problem? I think they looked at the SEC and said, no, 
that's not a very good idea. Uh, you know, uh, so the timing of when the SEC did this as well is, is interesting. Uh, uh, and it is actually at the beginning of the longest stock market boom in, at least at that point in U.S. history up until the, you know, so I think, yeah, the, the, this relationship between, uh, you know, what these companies want and how they're really changing what we do and changing what some of the agencies do, uh, uh, even before, uh, you know, at a point, I mean, it's kind of astonishing either, either uh, you know, this notion that companies spending trillions and trillions of money just trying to prop up their stock price so people can sell their shares, either that doesn't matter or if it matters, it's kind of crazy that it's a rule adopted under the radar in 1982 that that uh, was revised once in 2003, but really that legislators had never objected to, uh, and never no one said, "Hey, what's going on here?" Except some somebody who just kind of has a screwed up view of the economy, like me, <laughs> you know. Which which came, uh, I think, going back full circle to seeing that how important companies are in terms of people's employment, how important that stability is over time. That what I call the retain and reinvest is over time. So uh, that's really where the action is, and that that's. That's, I think, what we have to be able to say. Uh, these three white guys, after all, writing this uh, book on black employment, uh, I think what we have to say is comes from that insight of the importance of of, of that kind of uh, employment relation to the 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 rise of the white middle class and how blacks got to take take part in it until they couldn't take part in it and then nobody worried about it. Well, this is this is uh, a major concern. Uh, a man named Arjun Jayadev and I wrote a paper about how, if you look geographically at the variations in economic activity, meaning downturns produce despair. Yeah. Survey evidence: when the economy goes down, despair goes up. But what we did was we mapped that in the geographic locations with indicators of racial animosity. And when despair goes up, racial animosity goes up. What we oh, call absolutely. otherness, they blame, they scapegoat. Why don't you and him go fight while the other guys make the money? And yeah. I think that we're in a place now, where I'm a, you know, as you're painting this portrait today and you're such a deep and thorough researcher, but it makes me understand not the end game, but the attraction to electing Donald Trump. Oh People yeah, we're yeah. so despairing. They're so despondent. The cauldron of racial animosity has been taken to the boil that it feels like the wheels have come off the world, and power yeah, yeah. isn't talking about a sustainable trajectory. And yeah. I'm not saying he was the answer. Uh, you know, you might say seduce and abandon would be the. Oh yeah, no, no. Period. But uh, but the system is rigged, is what this man said to get oh, elected. Yeah. And in yeah. my hometown of Detroit, white collar people were saying, "This is the first guy who's ever said anything about the big three management not producing jobs." When he spoke to the Economic Club of Detroit just after he had the nomination, yeah. these people even though they're doctors and lawyers and accountants and MBAs and executives who are my childhood friends, are worried about their children being in that Rust Belt, that Michigan-like oh, yeah, yeah. area and not having a future. Yeah. So what I guess I'm saying is you're, 
through the lens of the people who were on the end of the whip, the black people, it's getting larger and larger and larger. And yeah. then it feeds back into racial animosity, which I don't know. I can understand the despair. What I'm grappling with in guiding INET is how we realistically create solutions that put us back onto a healthy humanistic trajectory. What does it require in education reform? What does it require in policy reform, tax reform? I mean, I think Janet Yellen's G7 gesture may not have gone as high a rate as you'd like to see, as Joe Stiglitz has emphasized since it's come out, but I think she was trying to turn the corner. And I look at, I look at how far out of balance things are in listening to what you say. And I'm just curious, because we've got to close up here shortly, but if you were able to prescribe the remedy, the platform for the person running for president, in light of what you see and what you know, what does the, what does the healing regime look like? Yeah, well, interestingly enough, um, you know, uh, uh, Joe Biden, you know, I think does have a lot of empathy for the working class. I think there's absolutely yes, no doubt about it that. Appears, yeah. But the question is, can can he can he turn that into policies that really get to the kind of working class that he says he knew, you know, growing up, you know, and of course, and it can't be done in the same way, and it can't be done with the same type of jobs. It, in fact, the challenges that you know the the educational challenge, the upgrading challenge. Uh, the roles for community colleges uh, are are huge. For example, I think there was that's, you know, part of the funding of. There's a lot of elements to it, uh, but one of the things, uh, at, uh, which again, I'm in the middle of writing a paper on this, so I'm not sure I I, I got doing too many different things at once, but it's all right. Um, but uh, as I said, with this buybacks issue, uh, the uh, uh, you know, that actually became something that people started talking about. Uh, I can say, safely say it's because for some reason, Harvard Business Review <laughs> published an article which had the subtitle, How Stock Buybacks Manipulate the Market and Leaves Most Americans Worse Off, which is a subtitle I gave them and they didn't, they, they kept it. And it was at a time in 2014 when it came out that, you know, you had had the recovery, but, you know, people, you know, there, every, people were just being left out. And uh, so it caught on, and he he became a big fan of that that article. I met with him twice uh, about it, and he actually wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal uh, in uh, uh, September of 2016, and uh, called uh, it's on short-termism. It saps the economy. It's something like that. I don't call it really short term. I call it value extraction, value creation, because I don't think it's a mindset of short term, long term. I said, who has the power? Who creates value? Workers and taxpayers are putting all this stuff in. Who takes it out? So we have this book, Predatory Value Extraction, which came out with the, you know, which of course INET had a book party for, um, uh, which hasn't really gotten any, any, uh, it came out just before the pandemic, uh, really. Uh, it's like it doesn't exist to tell you the truth. And, and I'm not sure exactly why, because the buyback stuff had way more discussion coming out of it. 
you know, and recognizing, you know, the work we were doing than I would have ever imagined, including Biden. Now, it's strangely, strangely absent now. And for example, uh, the tax cut uh, from of corporate tax cut from 35% to 21%. Uh, it was recognized on both sides that that was going to be spent on buybacks, except, you know, on the on the Republican side and maybe even to some extent on the Democratic side, but mainly the Republican side said, so what? That's going to be good to boost the stock market. Democrats actually, led by Schumer, had it was called hashtag GOP tax count. It was all about don't let them do buybacks. And that actually also resurfaced in March of uh, 2020 when the airlines uh, didn't want uh, buybacks to be done when they were the union said don't do buybacks and we're being bailed out. But there's and, and Biden came out at that point and said companies should not be allowed to do buybacks during the pandemic. But it's been strangely absent from policy. So it would be the easiest thing for them to say, if we're going to put the tax rate halfway back to 28%, we should do that because companies were just doing stock buybacks because of that. Somebody doesn't want that to be said in this administration. And it's been manifested, uh, I don't know if uh, Tom Ferguson, who knows about this, mentioned this to you, but it's something that I find utterly bizarre. I mentioned this, this, uh, uh, and I'll say it in a podcast if you want to put it out there because people can go and look and see. This article that, uh, that Biden had in September of 2016, it mentioned one person, you know, research in the article, me. It says, according to economist William Lozonic, and then it gave data from that Harvard Business Review paper on buybacks. Okay. Uh, someone was asking me about it. I said, oh, yeah, Biden talked about it. And I went to look at it. I uh, found it online on, uh, you know, of course, Wall Street Journal. Someone had cut my name out. If you go online, it says, according to Lozonic, and then there's actually a space and a comma, and my name's disappeared. Now, how does that happen? <laughs> uh, I, now, I don't know what, what the bigger picture is here. I wrote to the op-ed uh, editor and said, you know, what's going on here? I never heard back. But I think there is a problem that there are some things that, you know, the corporate donors don't want to have touched. Yeah, and you have a legislative branch which is very dependent. It's very close between Democrat and Republican. Both sides need to raise a lot of money, and uh, it, it's hard to imagine things that are the right thing to do being passed if it gets in the way of concentrated wealth and power. Yeah, sure. uh, you know, and, and uh, I keep mentioning you know Al Gore only because he should know better, and and there's only seven people on the bloody Apple board, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, and so why don't why 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 are they doing this? Uh, and you know, it's not like when they do seventy three billion a year, they say, "Oh, th this is why we're doing it." They just call it their capital return program, as if it's the, it's the people who want to sell their shares deserve this. So it 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 uh, once this there there is a, a big problem here about you know, what these companies are responsible for. And, and it's not just the buybacks because it's all related. Why do you try to price gouge? If you're a pharmaceutical industry, you price gouge because you've got the profits up and then you use those profits, Pfizer and Merck, to spend 150% or 200% of your net income on dividends and buy, uh, buybacks and you, and you get your stock price up. Uh, they did that at, at, at Boeing. We wrote about that. 
you know, uh, uh, so why do you avoid taxes? You avoid taxes not just because you want to have more profits to reinvest. <laughs> uh, you avoid them so you can actually just do more uh, more buybacks and 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 pay dividends or boost your stock price. And unfortunately, uh, you know, it's nothing new. But the world's become obsessed with the stock market. <laughs> Uh, and and even even someone like Elizabeth Warren, when she speaks out of, against this, she doesn't really have a critique of the stock market. She never, she she actually, if you look at what she says, she doesn't say that. And the stock market doesn't even fund these companies. Uh, Bernie Sanders doesn't say that. That's a major blockage uh, to recognize the function of our institutions. Uh, well, you might call an unconscious uh, secular religion. Yeah, and it is the other side of workers' wages. <laughs> Uh, and, and unfortunately, even, even EPI, which has uh, been, uh, you know, in the forefront of writing about inequality and have written, a, you know, about executive pay, doesn't, you know, write about that. I mean, I've talked to people there for years about it, but there's some blockage in terms of, it's not simply, uh, I think, just the elite. It's, it's actually, when it comes to economists, there's just a, a total miseducation about the firm. You know, so I uh, there's a paper. Yeah, you know, I have this paper, uh, which I came out a year ago last uh, January called Is the Mo Most Unproductive Firm the Foundation of the Most Efficient Economy, which seems absurd. But that is what is taught in introductory economics courses. And I, I show in the paper the smoking gun where Samuelson in his textbook was explaining that the more unproductive the workers are, the, the sooner the cost curve turns up. Uh, and the smaller the firm is, the more firms are in the industry, then you have perfect competition, and this is the best of all possible worlds. So then he realized what he was saying, and so he cut out the explanation of why the cost curve turns up. <laughs> and, and, and this is what everybody's teaching students you know, about the firm. Now, what it says is the firm is impotent and the, and the markets are omnipotent. Uh, you know, and so the firm is so that's the way most economists in the liberal economists, even progressive economists, uh, think. So that, that's a real blockage, I think, to to seeing. So so back to the question. Yeah, it has to be reforms around corporate governance. Uh, it, it, it really that's where the action is. That's where the money is. And that's where the income inequality is being created and the jobs are being lost. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to close here by referring people to a book that echoes, not as an economist, but a gentleman who studies theology named Eugene McCarraher, who I had on the podcast, and, and the title of his book is The Enchantments of Mammon. And I do believe that this, uh, he's, he's talking about how, particularly in anxious and tumultuous times, people create false idols to alleviate their anxiety, and they can be pretty resilient and cling to them. But alongside this now, there's a whole lot of turbulence in the sea. And it doesn't look like the boat's going to have smooth sailing until we have a wake-up call. And Bill, you were talking about, you know, things keep getting stuck and this and that. Well, I think in one of the ways, you're, the, you're one of the plumbers for the 21st century that's going to get things flowing again. Okay, hopefully. <laughs> so, well, I thanks say, for being a, here. I've got a lot of papers in the pipeline, so I have to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, keep them flowing and yeah. keep it up. Yeah, and thank you for it. being here today. And uh, yeah, let's well, make another, let's take another say, chapter again soon. Yeah, and I should say thanks to INET because INET, you know, I'm kind of this organization, the Academic Institute Research Network and all these people I've 
working with have grown up with INET, and uh, it's uh, we wouldn't be doing this stuff without INET. I can say that for sure. Well, thank but, you for that, and we're fortunate to have you there to do the things. So okay, great. Talk again soon. Okay, great, great. Thanks a lot. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing